Shalom and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We have a very special guest with us today, Avi Zaharov, the co-creator of the hit TV show Fauda and a leading Israeli journalist on Arab and Palestinian affairs, is back on the podcast to talk about his new upcoming show on the Showtime network called Ghosts of Beirut, which just by the trailer looks amazing. And we'll also get into some current events with Avi with regard to Gaza and the Palestinian arena and domestic Israeli politics. But first, a few thoughts from me. So we'll get into the recent mini one-day escalation between Israel and Gaza in just a second, but I wanted to highlight an important event that took place last Thursday night in Jerusalem, and that's of course the big pro-government right-wing rally in favor, in favor of the judicial overhaul. Your humble servant was there in person because I am, after all, a professional, and also because I slightly hate myself. But all kidding aside, after four months of anti-government protests, I felt it was really important to see the other side for myself in person. So what did we learn? Number one, a lot of people came out. A lot of people, like over 200,000, and that's without the ultra-Orthodox and Haredes, whose rabbis directed them not to attend. But who did come out? Obviously, a lot of kippah-wearing religious nationalists and West Bank settlers who were bussed in, a lot of families with little kids, but also many secular and old-school Likud voters, and just by the look of them, some individual Shas voters as well were in attendance. In short, a lot more clothing and a lot more guns than you find in the Tel Aviv protests. Number two, this was a government-orchestrated show of force. Uh, unlike the anti-government protest movement, the Jerusalem demo was funded and organized by the actual coalition political parties, and government ministers and lawmakers were the primary speakers at the demonstration, and it was all effectively a top-down political event, uh, in contrast to the bottom-up and grassroots uh, affair of the other side of the anti-government protest movement. It all begs the question, who were they actually protesting against, since, you know, they're all still in power. But regardless, the main point was to show that, quote-unquote, the people, but more importantly, the government's right-wing base, and even more important than that, the hardline wing of this current government still really, really wants judicial reform, as they called it. The people demand judicial reform, they all chanted, and the speakers, including Betzalel Smotrich and Yariv Levin and Itamar Ben-Gvir and others, all promised them and vowed that judicial reform would actually still happen. Never mind the major social and economic and military damage this is all caused. Never mind, too, the major political damage to their own parties this is all caused. Not one speaker at the event last Thursday referenced any of that. Number three, and finally, I couldn't help feel, standing in that massive crowd, that I had gone through some kind of looking glass into a bizarro alternate universe. The sea of Israeli flags, the chants of demokratia, democracy, the fears about some incipient dictatorship, uh, in their minds, of course, a Supreme Court dictatorship, much of it, and nearly all of it, was the same, only 180 degrees in the opposite direction. At one point, a group of protesters in Jerusalem started chanting, where were you in Gush Katif? Where were you in Gush Katif? An allusion to the 2005 disengagement from Gaza, 
uh, but also a callback to the Tel Aviv protesters yelling, where were you at Hawara? Bizarre world, I know. One country with two peoples holding diametrically opposed views about Israeli identity, the meaning and purpose of Zionism, even basic Jewish values. Like I said, it was important to see it for myself, even if it was all very depressing. Let's get to Avi Sekharov. Hi, Avi. Welcome back to the Israel Policy Pod. Hi, Nili. Thank you very much. Uh, it's my pleasure, Avi. Uh, so I don't know if you remember, but last time you were on was October 2021. I think you were my second or third guest after I started hosting. Uh, back then, we talked a lot about Fauda and your own career trajectory. But now you and your collaborator, and I use that word collaborator in the positive sense of the term, uh, Leo Raz, are about to come out with a new show on the Showtime Network, May 19th called Ghosts of Beirut, all about the life and death of Hezbollah arch-terrorist Imad Mournier. So first question to you, Avi, why Imad Mournier? What drew you guys to him and to the story uh, specifically? So thank you very much for inviting me here again, Neri. It's always a pleasure. And, you know, uh, I guess that in the first round, I didn't do too many um, mistakes and uh <laughs> so thanks again for uh we're, we're happy to have you back yeah 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 I, I wanted to say a specific word but i'm not i'm not sure that i'm allowed to say it in a podcast so but i, I guess that your audience did understand what i'm trying to say uh why aimad murnia aimad murnia for me was like the 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 great white whale in many senses meaning I had my master's degree in Middle East studies, uh, mainly about the connection between Hezbollah and Iran. Um, and over there, I learned a lot about Imad Mournia and his character. And I also wrote a book. Uh, I co-authored a book together with Amos Sarel, the military analyst for Aretz newspaper. And it was about the second Israeli war in Lebanon. <clears throat> and of course, we discussed in the book which is called the 34 Days, we discussed the roots of Hezbollah and the way that it had been founded, uh, the first operations that they pulled, and against this, uh, this enigmatic character of Imad Monia came over and over again through my thesis, through my research for the book. And I understood that this is a kind of a, how can I put it, a kind of a Bill Gates of terrorism. He wasn't just a terrorist. He wasn't one of those guys that you, you know, you're used to see in the West Bank or Gaza Strip uh, walking around with an AK-47. And when you learn more and more about him, you understand how enigmatic he was and, in a way, what a genius he was. I mean, he was, like many people today tend to say, the Michael Jordan of terrorism, okay? He was yeah. the one who brought the suicide attacks uh, to the Middle East. I mean, before Ahmad Mouria, before 1982, yes, we had all kinds of jihadists or all kinds of istishadiyun uh, during the Iran and Iraq war, but there was no such thing as someone who's going and committing a suicide attack in order to kill the enemy. 
a real suicide attack with an explosive belt or with a, a car bomb. And this is what Imad Munia brought to this region. And it's quite amazing to think about the world, as we know it today, without the phenomenon that is called the suicide attacks. Now, I'm not saying that he invented it at all, but he's definitely the one who brought it in and made it a kind of a very common phenomenon in the world of terrorism as we know it today. Right. And uh, the, the Michael Jordan of terrorists, he also was, uh, I guess, one of the founders, at least the military wing of Hezbollah, which many people and analysts and officials credit as being arguably uh, the most capable and the most dangerous terrorist organization in the world already for 40 years. Um, and also, uh, we should say, for many years, he was one of the most wanted uh, terrorists, uh, specifically by the U.S. and Israel, because of the heavy, heavy death count uh, of Americans and Israelis that he had on his hands, right? He killed more Americans than anyone else till Osama bin Laden. He killed more Israelis, more French. He killed more Arabs, okay? Let's make it very much clear to everyone. He killed more Arabs than most of the people that we know of today. I mean, he killed hundreds of them in Lebanon and outside of Lebanon because they were against Hezbollah, because they were his enemies. The man didn't care about life issues. He, the minute that he found someone as being a suspect of collaboration or a kind of an enemy, he went for the kill. The man has, has on his hands the blood of hundreds of people. Uh, and I'd just like to remind you a, a list of some of his operations, so-called, or the terrorist attacks that he pulled, just in order to make you understand whom are we talking about. So the first attack, Tyre, 1982, the Israeli headquarters in Tyre, this is the first time that the a whole building collapsed. At the beginning, that the, the Israeli army, the Israeli intelligence, thought that it was a gas leak. Later on, they started to suspect that that was a suicide attack. But because there was no such thing till that moment as a suicide attack, so when there was a huge explosion, no one thought that that could have been a suicide attacker. But later on, I'm talking about March, April, April, if I'm not wrong, of uh, 1983, when he sends a bomb well, he sends a suicide attacker to the American embassy in Beirut and manages to kill 64 people, including CIA officials, including Robert Ames, who was the special envoy to the Middle East from the CIA or head of the CIA, head of the Middle East Department in the CIA, etc. Then a few months later, uh, October 1983, the Navy barracks in Beirut. And immediately after that, the French Navy barracks, simultaneously, two attacks, killing more than 300 people with car, well, truck uh, bombs uh, that were driven by suicide attackers. And it just continued on and on, TWA, 1985, the kidnapping of uh, the head of the CIA station in Beirut, William Buckley, and holding him in, in uh, prison for 16 months and then executing him. Uh, later on, the Argentinian, the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires in Argentina and the, the Jewish community building in Buenos Aires two years later. So the list is so long and it's just the beginning because later on he helped also Al-Qaeda 
And he, of course, joined forces with the Iranians in all kinds of operations against the U.S. and against Israel. So the Americans, the CIA, had a very open account with this guy. They wanted him dead, just like the Mossad. And this is what brought those two organizations to commit the first ever joint assassination operation for Israel and the U.S. And we'll get to that in just a second, but it is Pretty amazing, I guess, two things, right? That uh, the tire bombings in South Lebanon against the Israeli uh, Shin Bet headquarters, and then I think later on, a year later, about against the IDF headquarters in southern right. Lebanon, and then the U.S. embassy bombings and the Marine barracks bombing in Beirut. That was in 1982 and 1983. And that was basically the beginning of Mounir's career. And he was only 21 years old. This man at the age of 21, 22 years old, managed to bring the withdrawal of two of the biggest or strongest armies in the world from Lebanon, meaning the U.S. Army, the French Army, and as a dessert, also the withdrawal of the Israelis to the southern Lebanon line of 40 kilometers from the border. And that was inconceivable to understand that, you know, this very young man managed to bring an empire on its knees and to bring the American president, Ronald Reagan, announced that he's withdrawing his forces from Lebanon. Yeah, uh, it's it's really remarkable. And I was going to say that when I was doing just a, a little bit of prep research for this podcast and just refreshing my, my own memory of uh, Mournier, uh, I couldn't believe that he was killed uh, in 2008 he was 45 years old or right around 45 years old. And I did the math backwards. And like you said, he was in his early 20s when he really began his terrorist career. It seems crazy to yep. think. In 26 years that this man managed to escape it over and over again from the Mossad, from the CIA, from the French intelligence, and even from the Saudi intelligence, and managed to trick everyone, and they didn't know how does he look like. They didn't have a clue where he was. And even when they knew where he was, they couldn't touch him because of his uh, locations. And it took them a while till they understood where he was and how does he look like. So is this why you called the show uh, The Ghost of Beirut? Because for over two decades, this man, this arguably the arch-terrorist uh, in the world, I guess before Osama bin Laden, he managed to basically evade the CIA and the Mossad and everybody. Right. He had many names. Uh, one of them was Father of the Smoke, Abu Khan. Uh, why? Because he just vaporized uh, very fast from any place that he was. Uh, but he had other nicknames, like Hajradwan. If uh, any one of you wonder why do they call the special elite forces of Hezbollah today uh, Radwan forces, it's after him. Because his nickname was Hajradwan. Uh, but also some other um, nicknames. And his very close network of people, meaning, first of all, his uh, brother, Jihad, then his cousin, his uh, cousin Mustafa Badr al-Din, who was mm-hmm. also the brother of his wife. They together formed the first few cells of Hezbollah, together with the Iranian involvement and with the help of the Revolutionary Guard, who just started to operate all over the Middle East and not only in Iran and Iraq. So we're talking about really June 1982. The Iranians are sending their first 
um, officers from the uh, Revolutionary Guard Force. And together with a very small group of young people, Shia, fanatics, like Imad Murnia, like Mustafa Badiradin, like Jihad Murnia and the others, they formed this group that at the beginning is calling itself the Islamic Jihad. And later on, they announced themselves as Hezbollah, the party of God. And thereby changing the entire trajectory of the Middle East, arguably. Completely. And... And without giving too much away, Avi, what ultimately led to Mulnia's downfall? If he was so successful in evading all these intelligence agencies for, for decades, uh, what, what ultimately led the CIA and Mossad to actually track him down where they tracked him down at and successfully actually eliminate him? So it was a combination of few, of few elements. And for that, of course, we did a kind of a, a very uh, wide and uh, thorough research in the U.S., in Israel and in Lebanon. And I must say that together with us, uh, it's not only Leo and I who wrote this, but also uh, we had a Lebanese writer and uh, an American writer, meaning the director. And the four of us formed a kind of a very special group, uh, Lebanese, American, and Israelis, that are writing together this show about Lebanese terrorists. Now, he, in many senses... His ending was very dramatic, just like in a, a Hollywood movie or a good TV show that you would expect. <laughs> yes. Meaning he had an issue with women. Okay? He was a womanizer. Uh, he was using prostitutes um, for most of his life. But the thing was that towards the end of his uh, life, he met a woman that he got very close to. Um, and he loved her, as far as we know. And because he came back to her over and over again, he started to do some very crucial mistakes of having a routine, for example. Um, and that created a, a kind of an opening for the Mossad, for the CIA. Now, the bottom line was that thanks to some kind of a technological breakthrough, um, which one might call a star trail, just like you see in the sky, a star trail. They, I mean, the A200 unit in the Israeli intelligence and the Mossad managed to understand his whereabouts and his movements. Meaning when he was getting into Damascus, there were some early signs that were telling the teams here in Tel Aviv, he's coming to Damascus in a few days. So if you ask me what is a star trail, you can only imagine that. Like if they try to track someone and they cannot find him, but they know that if he's getting to Damascus, so one specific barber, and I'm talking about the haircut, is on a high alert. Or some specific laundry, a specific chef, a doctor is suddenly moving. So you understand that there's a kind of a star trail that this man is leaving or about to leave because he's, he's coming to Damascus. So on one level, it's the technolo technological breakthrough that they had post the, the second Israeli war in Lebanon. And the other element is that Imad himself, Imad Mourniya, became a bit careless and made mistakes that most of them are connected to his personal or even family crisis that he was facing at home. I see. Okay. 
for further answers and clarifications, we'll have to watch the show. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and with regard to the show, uh, so it's a four part series, uh, but it's a docudrama. So to my understanding, it mixes both fictional accounts by, by actors, many well-known actors from the U S and also from Israel, uh, including some of our favorites from Fauda I saw in the trailer. Right. Right. But but it also has uh, actual documentary interviews with experts and former officials, right? Right. So to my question, why did you choose to do it this way in terms of a docudrama and not say, you know, a purely Hollywood rendering of the story? Uh, why did you choose to go the docudrama route? So the process was like that. At the beginning, we thought of having just a drama. Then it didn't work that well. And we offered to Showtime to do a documentary. And then when we hooked up with uh, our director, Greg, and so Greg was saying, listen, guys, for a documentary, we need the people that were involved. Um, so you can imagine, Neri, that to get the people that were involved, either in the chase or in Hezbollah, it's <laughs> mission impossible. So yes. this is why Greg, Greg Barker, offered that we will dramatize or narrate uh, many parts of the of the story. And pretty soon we found ourselves with uh, a, a huge majority of the time of the show being uh, dramatic and narrated with only some very small elements of interviews and real footage from real events, just in order to make the audience understand that this is real, it did happen, and it, did, it gives some, some credit to what you see on the screen, meaning that it's not coming out of uh, a scriptwriter that is just imagining scenes and invent them. No. Most of the stuff is real, only we dramatized some of the true stories that took place. Gotcha, gotcha. And just out of curiosity, who did you manage to interview either on camera or the background research for the for this project i mean how uh how deep did you get into tracking down those very same people who were tracking down uh, Moronia? i believe that we got really deep uh, you know some of the names i cannot say the ones that were on record are the head of the intelligence department in the mossad back at the time of the assassination Chaim tomer and the head of the army intelligence back at the time of the assassination, uh, General in Reserves, Amos Yadlin. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had more from the Israeli side, but these are the ones that you will probably see more. And there are some former CIA uh, handlers, corporation people, journalists, analysts. This is more or less, more or less the list of people that is being interviewed in the show. Okay. Um and just final question uh, about the ghost of Beirut, Avi. Why, like you said, was it really just the first time that this was a joint assassination operation by the CIA and Mossad? Was it just because Mournia was so so wanted by both countries? Did uh, did either side bring something a bit unique or different to the table? Uh, why was it really the first time that such an operation was undertaken by uh, by CIA and Mossad? Look, according to what I know, of course, and the research that I've done, the collaboration between the CIA and the Mossad took place way, way before the assassination of Mounia, of course. But for an assassination operation, 
you need to completely trust the other intelligence apparatus that you're working with. You need to come complete open and give them your most biggest secrets and your biggest assets and trust them completely. The CIA and the Mossad were like a kind of a married couple that, you know, usually they're very in love with each other, so-called. But sometimes uh, there's <laughs> some tension and arguments and disagreements and sometimes someone is leaving the house and then later on comes back. There were some times of real tension between the CIA and the Mossad. During the 70s, I can only uh, remind you that while the Israelis were hunting down for the, the Red Prince, Ali Hassan Salame, the man who planned the Olympic Munich Games massacre, Ali Hassan Salame was an asset of the CIA and got their uh, umbrella, meaning they make, made sure, try to make sure that no one will touch Ali Hassan Salame. Uh, this is just one example. I think that because... And by the, yes, by the way, we should, we should remind our listeners, uh, the Red Prince was ultimately killed by the Mossad in Beirut. Right, in the 70s. 1979, yeah. without the approval of the CIA, of course, that were shocked uh, from, the, from the operation. And it was made by a Mossad um, agent, uh, an Israeli agent that was sent to Beirut for six years. Uh, Beirut and Damascus, and he lives today in Tel Aviv, this man. Hmm. Um, and... You know, when we keep that in mind, that there is a kind of a basic tension and a competition over assets, over intelligence between those two agencies, although it's like two friendly countries. So one can understand why, how come that, you know, assassination operations is a, a bigger issue. It's not that easy to pull. In this case of Imad Murnia, the blood on his hands the list of people that were killed by him on both sides left the Israelis to understand that in this case, they can trust the Americans, they can join forces, and maybe it will be a kind of a proof for the strengthening connections between the two agencies. So at specific point around 2007, Mayor Dagan, the head of the Mossad, understands that the Israeli intelligence has the ability to locate Ahmad Munir in Damascus. Mm -hmm. But now the problem is how do you pull out an assassination operation without leaving any fingerprints and making sure that the people who executed this operation are out of Damascus, are out of danger while it is taking place. For all this, he understood that it will be way, way easier if he will have the Americans joining this operation. And this is what he did. He convinced the Americans to join forces. It wasn't that easy. And there were some real arguments about specific issues. Like, for example, the technique that was used in order to kill Ahmad Munia that was discussed over and over and over again between the two agencies. At some point, the Americans even pushed on the brakes very hard because they thought that the collateral damage is going to be way too big. This is A. And number two was the collateral damage from the uh, perspective of uh, the people that were around Ahmad Munir. 
because it wasn't that easy to find Eimadmonia, but they found it. It wasn't that easy to prepare the whole operation to kill Eimadmonia, but they managed to pull the operation. The only thing that was a kind of the, one of the biggest obstacles, actually, was that the Americans demanded that the operation will include Imad Mugunia and Imad Mugunia only, meaning he cannot be killed with anyone around him, not his wife, not his kids, not his friends, and definitely not his closest friend, Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Al-Quds force uh, from the Iranian Revolutionary Guards that was walking with him wherever he went in Damascus. And in one of the situations, in one of the cases, The Mossad and the CIA had the chance to kill Imad Murnia, but the Americans said we need to stop because Qasem Soleimani was there. There was an Israeli attempt to convince the Americans to pull, to push the, the bottom and to kill them both, but the American administration resisted, resisted very aggressively and said, no, we're not going to do that. And they needed to wait till the moment, to the right moment that Ahmad Mounir will be alone and only then. That's fascinating. Uh, and you piqued my, my, my curiosity, Hafi. Uh, does Qasem Soleimani make an appearance in the show? Yes, he does. No, he's a, okay. a real character over there. All the, all the names that I've mentioned, whether it's Mustafa Badr al-Din and uh, the brother, um, and of course uh, some Israeli characters like Meir Dagan, is there in the show, and also someone that is called Teddy, that is named after a real Mossad officer that was the, the man who's in charge of this project, of this operation, that had another nickname, but we changed it, of course, but he's a real person, and he is in the show. Okay. Uh, so I uh, definitely encourage everybody to check it out uh, when it comes out May 19th. We'll be right back after this brief message. If you are a young professional between 25 and 39, consider applying for the Charles Bronfman Conveners Program. This cohort-based learning experience begins with a three-day summit in Washington, D.C., where you'll learn from policy analysts, ambassadors, journalists, and other experts about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and regional issues. Conveners from over a dozen cities across the U.S. and Canada will go back to their home communities to share what they learn with their networks and develop ideas to elevate the discourse around Israel and drive policy-oriented education. Learn more at ipf.li slash conveners. Um, Avi, uh, since I have you here, uh, I also wanted to touch on a few current events. Uh, first off, we're recording this Wednesday afternoon. So yesterday we saw, uh, as I'm sure our listeners know, a limited, basically one day mini escalation between Israel and Gaza. Uh, over 100 rockets were fired into southern Israel and airstrikes uh, were launched by Israel against Hamas military targets inside the Strip. Uh, this all came after a senior Islamic Jihad member, uh, Khader Adnan, died in Israeli prison after an 86-day hunger strike. So, Avi, as an uh, expert, especially in the Palestinian arena, uh, what did you make of the death of Adnan uh, in Israeli custody and maybe even more uh, interestingly or surprisingly, the highly restrained response uh, by the Netanyahu government 
that we saw overnight to the, to the renewed rocket fire. So let's start with Hader Adnan. You know, Hader Adnan was under administrative detention in the past. But in the last few weeks or months, he wasn't held in administrative detention, though I saw that some, some people are tweeting that and that's a mistake. He was held as a prisoner and he was about to be taken to court and accused of being part of a, of a terrorist organization and inciting for terrorist attacks. By the way, Hader Adnan never hide it, meaning he did call himself an Islamic Jihad leader, which is a terrorist organization, and he was inciting for terrorist attacks openly, widely, so it's not a kind of a false accusation or anything that the Israeli authorities invented. It's all, it was all known. And I listened to one of his speeches that he called to go and shoot Israelis and to go and to, make, to, to commit suicide attacks. So it, he was a very um, enthusiastic supporter of killing Israelis. Simple as that. Now, the man got his uh, 15 minutes, so-called, of glory when, like a few years ago, he went on a hunger strike while he was an, under a administ- administrative detention. And he managed to bring the Israelis to, to release him after a while. And while he was released, he became a hero, a hero in Jenin, in the north, um, the north city of the West Bank, but also in the, the rest of the Palestinian territories whether it's the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. He became a kind of a known leader for the Islamic Jihad. And now when he was arrested and about to take him to, to the court, accused of being part of a terrorist organization, etc., he decided to go on a hunger strike. Now, the Israeli authorities couldn't have released him just because he's on a hunger strike. So the hunger strike continued and continued till it got to the 86th day and he died. And, you know, again... Hader Adnan became a symbol, a symbol for, you know, resistance, for fighting against the occupation, and for prisoners, uh, Palestinian prisoners. The bottom line is that he managed to even uh, convince Hamas, in a way, that they should play a little bit with the current security situation between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. And Hamas did authorize yesterday the Islamic Jihad to shoot rockets. And at the end, he joined the Islamic Jihad also to shoot some rockets. And I'm saying that because Hader Adnan, for many Palestinians, was a kind of a symbol for, you know, true patriotism, etc. And this is why Hamas, who is interested in keeping the situation as calm as possible, did allow Islamic Jihad and did join the shooting of the rockets towards Israel, taking in account or making the calculation that it might lead to some limited escalation, this is what we saw, meaning 24 hours of an escalation, more than 100 rockets, but it ended up very early in the morning, and hopefully we're done with that. And from the Israeli and Netanyahu government point of view, uh, the response was very uh, restrained once again, uh, especially after the restrained response to the escalation we saw last month uh, from Gaza and Lebanon and, and Syria. Uh, and now Netanyahu and his government are catching a lot of uh, flack, shall we say, f- even from inside the government, from the right-wing flank, even from uh, many uh, right-wing supporters outside of the government. Were you surprised that uh, Bibi 
uh, didn't use this opportunity to strike Hamas and Gaza a bit harder? I was surprised that it didn't strike harder. But at the end, you know, there are two things that we do need to keep in mind. First of all, Netanyahu as a prime minister was always the more careful, less aggressive uh, ev- with everything that deals with military operation. He doesn't True. want wars. He doesn't like wars. And every time he has the chance to escape from a situation of a large scale of um, escalation, he will do that. This is what he's done all his life as a prime minister, though he, for some reason, got this image of, you know, oh, the, the big fighter against terrorism. At the end of the day, this man is way, way more careful than his image, especially among his supporters. The number two issue here that we do need to keep in mind, and I'm not saying this is a criticism, but, but the opposite, and this is the prioritize of threats that the state of Israel is dealing with right now. Hamas is not the biggest threat right now. The biggest threat right now are Hezbollah, the Iranians, and what they're trying to pull in Syria. And because of the chances of a way, way more frightening and bigger escalation vis-a-vis Hezbollah, Israel vis-a-vis Hezbollah, and the Iranians in Syria, this is why the Israelis do say, hey, or the IDF is saying, hey, we do need to focus on the most important threat, which is the northern front, and not the southern front, which is Hamas. Makes sense. Um, although I will say I have a, it's not a theory, but maybe more a hypothesis that because yesterday's escalation was initiated by the Palestinian side, that the timing may not have been right for, you know, operational reasons and other reasons to to strike harder. And that maybe uh, BB and this government are pulling what they pulled in late 2012, where out of the clear blue sky, they actually took out uh, the Hamas military chief, Ahmed Jabari, uh, due to renewed rocket fire uh, over the preceding weeks and months, and that they basically you know, picked and chose their spot uh, to actually uh, hit Hamas. And that, that led, I think, to an eight-day uh, eight escalation back in November of 2012. So my, I have a sneaking suspicion that maybe... They might pull the same thing this time, but but maybe not. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I my thesis is more of uh, okay. The bigger threat right now is the northern one, and this is why okay we're going to finish this round in Gaza as fast as possible, and maybe later on we'll get the chance to to deal with Hamas. But right now. Let us deal with uh, the Iranians. Right, right. Okay. Um, well, we'll find out one way or the other, I'm sure. Uh, second issue in terms of current events I wanted to bring up with you, Avi, uh, and we have to talk about it, the ongoing protest movement uh, against the Netanyahu government and its plan to overhaul the judiciary here in Israel, uh, and more specifically, your involvement uh, in the protest movement uh, as maybe some of our listeners know, uh, you've spoken at demonstrations in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, uh, Kfar Saba, if I'm not mistaken. So what compelled you uh, to take such a public role in a political movement? Uh, usually us journalists are not 
uh, not usually active participants in such things. We're usually observers. So what compelled you this time? What What is different about this type of political protest? Well, honestly, I've never participated or took part, real uh, major part in demonstrations, never spoken them or anything like that till the last um, protest against this government, against the what they call the judicial reform, and I call a coup, an attempt of a coup. Um, but I think that the minute that I understood that it's not anymore about, you know, passing a law here or passing a law there, but it's a real attempt for changing the face of the state, changing the face of the system, removing the democratic element from the Jewish democratic state and staying with only the Jewish state, I understood that, you know, I cannot be silent anymore. I cannot stay on this side as I used to do till now. You know, I was uh, writing about the Palestinian side, about the Middle East issues. I never um, said something, write something about internal politics. And over here, I, I thought that it's too much. It's way, way too much. And I cannot just continue and sit on the side, on the fence and not, be involved and not say something. And I needed to say something on behalf of many people, you know, uh, around my age, around my uh, background. And my background is of uh, a, a guy that used to serve in the Israeli Special Forces who's come, coming from a Mizrahi, Sephardic family, from not such an easy neighborhood in Jerusalem. And I found myself, you know, needing to say this because the Netanyahu's people were trying to portray the coup attempt as a kind of uh, a move which is coming from on behalf of the Sephardic or Mizrahi. And for me, it was misleading everyone, whether it's Ashkenazi or Mizrahi, and it wasn't any more about this uh, kind of a tribal a fragmentation between Ashkenazim and Mizrahi. That was a clear attempt just to change the face of the state of Israel. And instead of going over and over and playing over the hate and the ancient history of what happened between the Mizrahim and Ashkenazim here at the, back in the early 50s, I thought that it was about time to say, stop with that. It's too obvious. And it's time to unite forces instead of tearing these people Apart, I think that the, the the attempt for a coup or the what they call the judicial reform is tearing this country apart instead of uniting these people, and that was the m- biggest mistake that Netanyahu and his people did. And I think that many people do understand that today, that the judicial coup is not going to pass, and what Netanyahu and his people are trying to do is not going to succeed. It's not going to move forward. And we, as I see the majority of the people in Israel, according to the polls, at least, we're not going to let him do that. Yeah, uh, I, I hope you're right. Uh, I believe you're right. So, But it does sound like you're maybe more optimistic now than uh, many of us were even just a few weeks or a few months ago. I think that, you know, when you see the polls, when you see especially... The people. Listen, Eli, I've been there every Saturday evening and in many of the cases also in the, during the week itself. When you see the hundreds of thousands of people that are going there and 
protesting and, and demonstrating against what this government is trying to pull, you understand that there's hope. You know, it happened in Hungary. It happened in Poland. Over here, the most, well, the biggest mistake that Netanyahu managed to pull, his strategic mistake was that he woke up the if a whole generation of liberal uh, democratic Israel that was very silent and very indifferent during too much, too long, uh, too many years. And his biggest mistake is that he managed to awake all those people that were the kind of a very quiet majority that paid the taxes, that served in Miluim, that did what everything is possible in order to have a better country. And suddenly they woke up and they understood that the people that are not paying taxes, the people that are not serving in the IDF, the people that are just not being true citizens of the state of Israel are stealing the state or the system from them. And for us, for me, that was the biggest sign that I need to stand up and go and demonstrate. And at the end of the day, when you see that the numbers of the people in the streets, you understand that you cannot be pessimistic anymore because there's a hope here. There's so many, there are so many people here that are not willing to watch their country die and not do something against it. Well said. And, uh, uh, inshallah that you are, uh, you are correct. Uh, and also, you know, it's amazing to me just following this from the beginning of January until now that we're into the fifth month of this protest movement, hundreds of thousands of Israelis every week, sometimes twice a week, like you said, uh, and also just the types of Israelis and it's all across the country. So it is, uh, it is remarkable. It is remarkable. Uh, and I agree with you that Netanyahu made a big mistake waking up, uh, basically all of middle Israel, uh, by the way, both left and right wingers, uh, as you know, I think. Right. That it's not just, it's not just the left. It's not right. just the, 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 the Tel Aviv hipsters that are out. It's uh, it's a lot, it's a lot wider than that. Um, Avi, before we finish up, I had two quick questions for you. Uh, number one, without giving away any spoilers, uh, the last season of Fauda uh, ended, shall we say, in very dramatic fashion. Uh, are there plans for a fifth season? Can we break any news here on the Israel Policy Pod? Actually, we cannot. Uh, we are not <laughs> sure yet that there will be a fifth season. We're still debating that. We're still negotiating that. And we will need to wait and see. Okay. Uh, it's good to know, uh, if even if there is no clear answer. And the second question, um, so just a reminder, Ghosts of Beirut will be available on Showtime starting May 19th. Uh, is there a way to watch uh, outside of the U.S. too, in terms of the show after it comes out? What are the plans for that? And there are some plans. Uh, I don't know the exact places, but there will be in... It will be aired outside of uh, the U.S. Okay, it's good to know. We'll uh, we'll inform people if and when uh, or when that happens. Uh, but for the time being, uh, May nineteenth on Showtime in America. Right. Okay. Um, Avi, thank you so much for taking the time to come back and join us, and uh, good luck with the show. I'm for one, I'm very excited uh, to check it out. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Okay, thanks again to Avi Sakharov for his generous time and insights. Do check out Ghosts of Beirut starting May 19th on Showtime. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a rating and comment. That always helps. And as always, thank you for listening.